Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt. This is Rolling Stone Music Now, and I have with me Andy Green and Brittany Spanos and Rob Sheffield. There's just been a total eclipse over all of our hearts because Jim Steinman died. And we're going to talk about a very unique figure in popular music, one that everyone with me is a big fan of. Rob named a book after one of Jim's lyrics, and Jim Steinman was a genre unto himself, if you don't know who Jim Steinman was. Jim Steinman, of course, composed Meatloaf Spat Out of Hell, but then if you look at all the other songs that he worked on, you sense common ground. The greatest and the one that Rob borrowed a lyric from is Total Eclipse of the Heart, which on some days I I would uh, rank with among the greatest songs ever written, perhaps. And Celine Dion, it's all coming back to me now. The subsequent Meatloaf hit, I Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That. Even Air Supply, perhaps the only listenable Air Supply song, and just barely, making love out of nothing at all. This was a guy who specialized in a certain kind of theatrical bombast. And as Rob would have it, he kind of made music for karaoke. He was the king of karaoke songs, I guess is your take on him. His songs were belters. You know, they'd they'd begin with these smoldering verses and then these explosive bombastic choruses, which were always sort of a twist on a cliche. You know, two out of three ain't bad. Total eclipse of the heart faster than the speed of night. And the fact that a Jim Steinman song was just a belter that anybody could belt and sound great. He made rock star out of anybody. That's why he's the absolute king of of the karaoke rooms. And that's why I wrote my book about karaoke called Turnaround Bright Eyes. It really is the greatest, greatest karaoke song. But but also, like you said, when you're when you hear it, you're like, this is the greatest song ever. Yeah, you know, I think a key thing about Steinman is he's this Jewish kid out of New York City who loved the theater. And he came out of the theater and he infused all of his songs with this theatrical bombast in a huge way. He almost saw them all as sort of these mini musicals onto themselves. Just each song is its own separate musical. And it's a glorious thing. There's no other writer in pop history that had that sort of vision, that imagination that he had. I mean, Brittany, when I hear Shallow, it's sort of like, what genre is that in? I think it's in the Jim Steinman genre, really. Yeah. I mean, when you think of the power ballad, it's like Jim Steinman. Everything that we know and love about the power ballad, he he invented, he reinvented, he popularized, he made it radio accessible. The fact that he can make these massively long songs that have all these different parts and these duets that are kind of like moving and moving dialogue and things like that that feel like mini musicals in and of themselves without even in the context of other songs on an album that's like its own thing and kind of set the bar for what we would hear on great movie musicals and great things like shallow where we kind of have that fitting into that that narrative and that plot line. And you kind of hear that influence on so many of our most theatrical singers, Gaga among them. Rob and I were saying the other day that Edge of Glory is an example, and it didn't occur to me until like last week, but Edge of Glory by Gaga is an example of someone aiming for Springsteen-ness and actually landing directly <laughs> on Jim Steinman. Uh, <laughs> that is a glorious fake Jim Steinman song. Andy, you were going to say something? Yeah, for sure. And the fact that Clarence Clemens plays on it is fantastic because Jim Steinman loved the street band. 
I love this image of what Meatloaf was telling me of Jim seeing Springsteen at the bottom line in 1975 and being just blown away by it. It's such a perfect union of worlds that launched so much. Well, the connection between Jim Steinman, and Meatloaf and the E Street Band is a very interesting one, and I was definitely going to get into that. I mean, I, I will say it's fairly well known among at least music geeks that Roy Bitten and Max Weinberg played on Bad Out of Hell. What I at least had forgotten is that Roy Bitten and Max Weinberg also played on Total Eclipse of the Heart. Which means that the song Born in the USA is actually Max Weinberg's second biggest drum sound of the 80s. Because (laughs) Total Clips of the Heart, the snare is like 50 cannons in, you know, I don't don't know. It's real loud, is is all I'm saying. There's a lot of (laughs) echo on it. Jim had an interesting relationship to Springsteen's music. The meatloaf really, Andy, did not like it when people saw Bad Out of Hell as some kind of Springsteen thing even though apparently Todd Rundgren took on the project, the producer, in part because he saw it as a, he thought it'd be a fun Springsteen parody. He, he heard that in there. Right. But a thing Meatloaf that he's pointed out many, many times is the demos, they do predate Born to Run, that Heaven Can Wait was sung by Bed Midler in 1972. <laughs> so a lot of these songs really were written before Steinman had heard Springsteen. That's just undeniably true. That is a fact. Let's Take it back to the beginning. So Jim Steinman grows up in college. He writes this theatrical piece that is seems like it's kind of hair inspired. It's uh, maybe Jesus Christ Superstar. I don't know. It's it's like a rock opera, and it, it kind of set the template for a lot of what he was going to do from then on. There's pieces I think that I think he take the turnaround Bright Eyes bit was taken from that musical. Although he then. I guess, as Rob, you quoted him, he later then rewrote the song to be part of a different vampire musical. Is that the deal? Yeah, he wrote Total Eclipse of the Heart. It was for one of his vampire musicals. Like a lot of people in the 70s who were coming out of theater and and thought that it would be easy pickings to take over the rock world. He's really like one of very, very, very few, maybe the only, definitely the only at his level success story of it. And, you know, although he liked to play up his theater roots, he he got rock and roll in a way that uh, most of those attempted crossover people just didn't at all. So the key encounter of his career, I guess, was Meatloaf. Andy, what can you tell us about how those two met? It's a really strange thing because they come from two different worlds. They're two different people. Meets a football player out of Texas you know, you never even think that he would encounter all these people, but he was so talented that he moved to L.A. and was in Hair and eventually got cast in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. He was this amazing presence. And 1973, he auditions for a play that happens to be written by Jim Steinman, and he walks on the stage, starts singing the song, and Steinman is blown away. He'd been searching for somebody who could feel his songs on stage, who could encompass them, who could be the rock star that he wasn't. For all of Jim's talents, he wasn't a singer. And when he saw Meatloaf, he really realized, like, this is my guy. And they cast him in the play. And as Meat told me, just every night when he sang the Steinman songs, the audience would just erupt. That something happened when Meat's voice and Meat's passion would meet 
a, a Steinman song. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Meat's passion is just uh, is a fantastic. I don't know how uh, how Jim didn't write that song, but I guess that's the theme of all of it is Meat's passion. But how did it go from that to Bad Out of Hell? Yeah, it's sort of a crazy story that they were both just looking for work a lot of the time, and the National Lampoon tour happened which is this pre-SNL, just incredible tour with John Belushi on it. And Meatloaf got cast as John Belushi's understudy on the tour. They were friends, and Meat would be at these parties at Belushi's house where they do the samurai routine stuff to people, you know, I'm sure with a lot of cocaine present. And there was this National Lampoon tour, and Meat got Steinman a job as the piano player on the tour. And so Meat drove the van, and was the understudy for Belushi. Steinman played the piano. And before the show, they'd get to the theater early, go to the piano, and work up these songs. Even in like 1974, they're thinking about a record. And they started writing. It was it was Steinman mainly, but the songs came to life on the road with the National Lampoon Tour. And it was like this theatrical piece that was also an album. It wasn't a normal album. It wasn't even a normal rock opera. And I think that's why they shopped around not so much Meatloaf as an artist, but this thing, this not yet recorded project of Bad of Hell. It's a very unique thing. And I think they were, you know, the famous thing is that they were turned down by like every record label in existence. Their auditions at labels that they'd go into the record buildings and they bring in a piano and they'd play the songs live essentially in these boardrooms. And the executives were horrified that, like Clive Davis, he just didn't see it. They couldn't see Meatloaf as a rock star. He looked way too different. And so it took years. There's a great story that Jim Steinman told about specifically the Clive Davis audition, which is that. Clive was basically like, you need to listen to the radio. You don't actually know how pop songs are written. You see pop songs. And he, he wrote down on a piece of paper, like, there's a verse, and then there's a chorus, and then it goes back to the next verse, and it's A, B, and your songs are like A through Z, and I'm lost. So you need to learn what a pop song is. And then he told Meatloaf he needed to listen to contemporary singers because he sounded like an old Broadway guy. And to be honest, you can understand because it's very strange music. I wouldn't say I'm the hugest bad out of hell fan, but I recognize its weird greatness, but it's it's totally bizarre. It doesn't belong anywhere in the history of music exactly. Yeah, I mean, it is just so theater in a way that a lot of rock operas really weren't. You know, you listen to something like Tommy and that's there's like theatrical moments to it, but it's not as Andrew Lloyd Webber that Jim Steinman gets to and it's so just completely over the top. I mean, that's kind of the beauty of it finally becoming a musical more recently. This was meant to be sung by like theater greats more so than even rock and roll singers. This is meant to kind of be delivered by that. And so, yeah, I mean, just the sheer length and the amount of stuff that goes on in all these songs. You think of Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Well, I remember every little thing as if it happened only yesterday. The fact that it was even a single, you know, the fact that that was even like on the radio is so wild. Growing up, I would hear it on the radio all the time. It would just be playing on classic rock radio constantly and just in full. And 
there is a hook in there, but it's not even about the hook. It's about kind of the story that's happening, the the narrative that the song is going through, the relationship between the two singers. That's incredible. And the baseball announcement thing yeah. is perhaps the crassest moment in the history of pop music. <laughs> I'm not sure, but only Jim Steinman would conceive of such a thing. <laughs> Rob, what are we to make of of specifically of Paradise by the Dashboard Live? Well, first, Phil Rizzuto is the only member of the Baseball Hall of Fame who needs to be a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> we got to get Phil Rizzuto in the other hall so he can be the only twofer in both Cleveland and Cooperstown. Because Phil Rizzuto does on Paradise by the Dashboard Live, that play-by-play. It, you know, totally brilliant. Of course, Phil Rizzuto always claimed he was snookered into it and he had no idea it was going to be something filthy i honestly don't believe him but phil certainly excels on that song absolutely brilliant song the thing is like it, it totally rocked for all the theatrical aspects and, and again there was such a glut of theatrical type rock projects at that time bad out of hell just the rock and roll elements just always really stood out two out of three ain't bad which is the first song that anybody heard it was such a, a powerful anthem it was so so verbal so clever you know, Meatloaf had the voice to sell it. And the total of the fact of Roy Bitten and Max Weinberg doing these, you know, frankly corny tropes that they never in a million years would have been allowed to do in the E Street Band was kind of like what sold it. My favorite moment in two out of three, bad one of everybody's favorite Meatloaf moments is when he says, there ain't no Coupe de Ville hiding at the bottom of a Cracker Jack box. And then there's that boom, 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 boom. Imagine Bruce Springsteen allowing that into one of his songs. He would have he would have crossed a picket line before he let that into Darkness on the Edge of Town. But there was something about the absolute go forward enthusiasm of the song that made it absolutely like undeniable as as a rock song. And and that whole album is full of alienated teen anthems that are framed as melodramas in such a beautiful way. Yeah, and I think a key part of the package was the live presentation of this music, that Jim saw Meatloaf was almost like King Kong on the stage. Just this wild, giant presence that you're almost scared of. There's almost a sense that he might lunge in the end of the audience or something, this uncontrollable force, sweating and heaving and sobbing almost through these songs to the point where Meat got so passionate as he sang these songs that he'd often walk off stage and literally pass out. It was every night was just this tour de force of emotion and passion and just it was unlike anything that the rock world had ever seen. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. 
What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. And the relationship between Jim Steinman and Meatloaf was certainly not the ordinary situation with the songwriter sort of meekly hands over his songs and then the singer gets all the attention. Jim was very much singing through Meatloaf. The concerts at that time weren't even really Meatloaf concerts. They were concerts for Bad Outta Hell. And they had a very specific idea of what Meatloaf should be doing when Meatloaf just said like, hey everyone, how are you tonight? Jim told him, no, you don't do that. You're the creature meatloaf who sings bad out of hell. You don't, you're not just a person. You know, Jim was, was in control of, or trying to be in control of every aspect of the thing. And Meat had a lot of problems with that. Meat one time took him aside and screamed, I'm not your Frankenstein's monster. Meat also felt excluded during the recording process. He was really just, as Eddie Van Halen would put it, he, he was just like a throat in some ways. But what a throat. So a key point there is there was this tension brewing between Meatloaf and Jim Steinman. And how, how did that play out over many years? It was a challenge. This is not Elton John and Bernie Taupin, two close friends working together for a common goal. They had different interests. And the album got so big, the tour was so long, they're playing six shows a week for month and month and month, that Meatloaf went insane, basically. He had what he's now calling a full nervous breakdown. And Steinman was getting jealous that most of the attention was on Meatloaf. And Steinman started thinking a, about his own career and his own fame. And that, as they would both say, was sort of the start of a very hard period when Steinman wanted to be known on his own. And he eventually wanted to be known as a singer, which was a really bad move on his part that caused him a lot of problems later on. Maybe should we talk about Jim's attempt at a solo career? Attempt? If, well, if by the classic album Bad for Good you mean an attempt, I say <laughs> more victories and successes and triumphs should aspire to the level of that attempt, my friend. Bad for Good, phenomenal album. As everybody knows, it was supposed to be the Meatloaf's second album, but Meatloaf wore out his voice on the road. Some fans always kind of suspect that maybe Meatloaf heard those songs and figured maybe Dance in My Pants wasn't where Meatloaf was going to go next. But I'll just pause and then say that Jim claimed that Meat did something so strange to his voice that when he opened his mouth, a sound came out like the little girl in The Exorcist. So you know, That sounds awesome. That's, yes, they should have made that I, album, I, but should, say, please go on, Rob. Um, Bad for Good was an album that completely disappeared, but it was funny because it, it very much followed the Bat Out of Hell template where there was a few alienated you know, three and a half minute, four minute AM radio friendly anthems of teen alienation. So rock and roll dreams come through was kind of the version of you took the words right out of my mouth. Whereas Dance in My Pants was like Paradise by the Dashboard Light, a boy girl epic, a cantata that has many parts and it has tropes and little motifs that reoccur. It, it's not as good. I'm not saying it's as good as Bad Out of Hell. Bad Out of Hell is, it's it's a bad out of hell. But I think Bad for Good is kind of like, and for an album that completely sank without a stone, nobody in America knew it came out until a couple of years later. 
But a key problem is Steinman's singing voice. He has a really thin voice and not much presence, really, in the videos or in anything. He needed Meatloaf as much as Meatloaf needed him, really, and he didn't realize it then. So true. I want to vouch for Jim Steinman on lead moment, though, which is Wasted Youth on Bad Out of Hell 2, which I'm obsessed with. I think that's an incredible monologue on there. Also, such a great thesis of so many of Jim Steinman's songs for Meatloaf, where it's kind of just like this kind of violent, really intense sort of youth rebellion moment about just like a Stratocaster guitar being used as a weapon and just kind of him sort of telling his dad, you don't know the first thing about rock and roll. It's so good. And it's a moment that I would keep on repeat constantly, just like in the middle of, you know, more meatloaf belting. But then you have Steinman doing this incredible dramatic monologue in the middle of the album, which is amazing. And I think that was sort of my first personal awareness of who the music was by and like that there's like this other you know when you first listen to Bad Out of Hell you're like okay like this is Meatloaf and then kind of learning about Jim Steinman and who he was I love that monologue so Jim Steinman on lead had its moments and I will say Wasted Youth is an iconic moment I remember every little thing as if it happened only yesterday I was barely 17 he was a hell of a reciter again one of everybody's favorite Bad Out of Hell moments is his bizarre dialogue you know like on a hot summer night would you offer your throat to the wolf with the red roses (laughs) and this really incredible sort of depraved medieval pagan ritual kind of like thing that's fitting between a couple of meatloaf songs it's really kind of genius he's really good at those sort of dramatic things you can definitely see like in interviews he used to say he always wanted to be jim morrison and he always said i have the personality to be jim morrison and the temperament to be jim morrison but I don't have anything else of Jim Morrison's. Wasted Youth is very the end. (laughs) Totally. Totally. He was really good at those Jim Morrison, yes, those like, mother! You know, like, yeah, Wasted Youth is a great example. I forgot about that one. On a hot summer night, he was really good at those Jim Morrison preacher voices. (laughs) We had just gotten up to the part where Jim made a solo album. I think at least three songs were sung by this guy, Rory Dodd, who is actually the dude in Total Eclipse of the Heart. He is forever known as the dude voice in Total Eclipse of the Heart. So that's who that is, if you ever did wonder. So he sort of had a ghost singer on his own solo album. All good. And then there was a, a Meatloaf album called Dead Ringer that I've never in my life heard. <laughs> I, I, I got it. I know Brittany will vouch for me because we were like talking about this the other day. The Cher duet on Dead Ringer is a lost Meatloaf classic, also a lost Cher classic. Yeah. Before even like the big share comeback of the 80s, there was Dead Ringer for Love. And that duet is incredible. I love a share duet generally. The fact that we didn't get more Jim Steinman songs for share is upsetting, but it's a, an iconic duet. Let's hear that for a minute. I think that Dead Ringer is a strong album, but four very long years had passed after Bad Hour to Hell, and this is now late 81, this is New Wave, this is MTV era, this is not Meatloaf's time, and the album, it did not do very well, to put it mildly. So when Meatloaf worked on his next record, he was given a strict mandate of no Jim Steinman songs, which is absolute madness, you know. I'm trying to think of a a funny analogy, but anyway, it's ridiculous. And that was when he wrote Total Eclipse of the Heart (laughs) and wanted Meatloaf to sing it according to Meatloaf, but he was banned (laughs) from Steinman songs. 
then comes Bonnie Tyler. Who was Bonnie Tyler? Where did she come from? What was her deal? She was Welsh. She had a soft rock hit in the 70s called It's a Heartache, which is now totally forgotten, partly because she had a second hit. In the annals of, you know, three hit wonders, like Bonnie, Bonnie Tyler's first hit, It's a Heartache, was so great because it sounds exactly like Rod Stewart. It's a heartache. Nothing but a heartache. It's the kind of thing where you heard it on the radio and everybody was like, no, no, Bonnie Tyler, that song is by Rod Stewart. Still a great song. I love It's a Heartache. But she was already done at that point. This is, you know, six years after It's a Heartache. And Bonnie Tyler comes out of nowhere. Like a lot of people in the 80s remember exactly where I was, what I was doing the first time I heard that song. It was the kind of thing where it was an epic at a time when things on the radio were not supposed to be epics. It was you know, this really kind of harsh, abrasive, Welsh singer belting voice. And it was this song that every time you thought, this is a pretty ridiculous song, it got even more ridiculous. <laughs> Impossible to describe the weirdness of hearing that song on 80s radio, you know, in between, you know, Mickey and, you know, Borderline. It's, it's like, what the hell is this little mini opera doing in the middle of Top 40 rotation? I have to say Bonnie Tyler has a great rock and roll voice. It's interesting that Jim Steinman compared her to John Fogarty. Because again, who also sounds a bit like John Fogarty, Bruce Springsteen. So we're back into that territory again. But it's such a great sort of rock belting song. And, and the other one they did with her is Holding Out for a Hero. Which is um, a masterpiece. Well, it's, it's the totally. second best song on the, on the Fantastic Footloose soundtrack because I, I will always ride for Let's Hear It for the Boy, which has nothing to do with Jim Steinman, but I just have to say that's a great song. Agree but, about Holding Out for a Hero. That is a classic. <laughs> also, the scene is the most insane scene for it to be soundtracking in Footloose. It's like two tractors playing a game of chicken two very slow moving large vehicles playing a game of chicken to this intense urgent song where you're like anything else could be happening right now yeah <laughs> and the song it's also used very effectively in the movie short circuit 2 which is very <laughs> underappreciated it's from johnny five when he's in maximum danger and the song comes on and you want a hero to save johnny five it's very emotional it's and fantastic. it's in shrek 2 the Shrek soundtracks were always really good with the, the random nostalgia, and that, that was a good choice for them. We should probably talk about the movie Streets of Fire, which, again, I'm not pushing these Bruce Springsteen things. These connections are all weirdly in the Springsteen shadow, because according to Steinman, the, the reason that he saw the screenplay for Streets of Fire is that he was apparently talking to John Landau, Bruce Springsteen's longtime manager, about Landau managing Jim Steinman, which would have been an interesting alternate universe to contemplate. And we can only ponder exactly why that didn't happen. I have some thoughts about why that might have not have happened. Perhaps another client objected. I'm just guessing. But they were in talks for John Landau to manage him. And, and I guess Jim Steinman literally saw this Streets of Fire script on Landau's desk because they wanted Bruce's song, Streets of Fire. Streets of That's how Jim Steinman got connected with it. And I will actually make a point that I was meaning to make because I believe that the song Streets of Fire and the entire Darkness on the Edge of Town album might not exist in the way that it does if not for Jim Steinman. And here's why, briefly. 
I believe that Bruce was intent on turning away from the sound of Born to Run and finding something new after all the success of Born to Run. And I believe that one of the reasons why he sort of banned many of the signature sounds of Born to Run, I do believe this, is because he had just heard them on a Meatloaf album. And that he was not going to, he was very wary of self-parody and he was refused to dabble in that. And so in this weird circular way, Jim helped create Streets of Fire and Darkness Under the Town. Andy, you want to say something? <laughs> yeah, I think that one reason why Bad Out of Hell that it sold so well in 77 was because the public was so hungry for new Bruce. It had been two very long years after Born to Run that even a crazy fever dream like Bruce album, that was good enough. Absolutely, that's true. A, a really interesting point about Bad Out of Hell and Meatloaf that gets lost in the shuffle of history is came out at the same time as Patti Smith doing Because the Night. And in fact, it was very common for people to think that Meatloaf and Patti Smith were the same person because they had like similar hair, very similar voices, and they were both doing very, very, very Springsteen-y type ballads. And the fact that, you know, Patti Smith had this huge top 40 hit, it only could have happened, as Andy said, because there was this massive Springsteen void where if you were a credible Springsteen emulator, you know, you had a shot. So Bad Out of Hell and Because the Night really could have traded places in so many ways. And I believe, I think it's Two Out of Three Ain't Bad is the one song that was mixed by Jimmy Iovine. And he did some similar things to what he did on Because the Night for Patti Smith. So there were some weird sonic commonalities. But what can we say about this, uh, this film, Streets of Fire, which uh, is not a good movie? Look, I don't want to oversell the movie, okay? I, <laughs> I don't want anybody to say like, okay, this is a lost masterpiece I should reinvestigate. I want to tell you, I love the movie. I'm not going to tell you it's great writing. I'm not going to tell you it's great acting. I'm not, in fact, going to tell you anything except I love this movie. It stars Diane Lane in her 1983. She's just emerged from child stardom, and she's trying to make the move into late teen stardom. She's just appeared in a great movie with Kenny Rogers called Six Pack, where Kenny Rogers is a race car driver who finds himself uh, adopting a, a family of six organ orphans and Diane Lane is, is you know the most mature and troubled six one. orphans there's too many orphans I you know I I just I love six pack I, I'm a <laughs> Diane Lane fan okay like uh, and Streets of Fire she plays a rock star who has a band called Ellen Aim and the Attackers and so when Diane Lane and her band are having these adventures on the aforementioned streets which are made of the aforementioned fire she needs songs to sing that sort of sum up her existential teen melodrama outlook. And who better for that than Jim Steinman? So he wrote these incredibly, you know, you could call them self-parody Jim Steinman songs, except, you know, the essence of this man is self-parody is what he did. So the Streets of Fire songs are great, particularly closing song in the movie, Tonight is What It Means to Be Young, which is perhaps the ultimate Jim Steinman song title. And I should stress that Diane Lane did not do her own vocals in this movie. Sorry to disappoint anybody who thought Diane Lane was a great rock and roll singer who taught Bon Jovi everything he knows. No, Diane Lane was just lip syncing the vocals. But fantastic performances. I would nominate Ellen Aim and the Attackers as one of the top five fake movie bands of the 80s. That's pretty high standards. That's up there with Rob Lowe's band in St. Elmo's Fire, Billy Hicks and the New Breed. The 80s were a real, real heyday for fake bands. Ellen Aim and the Attackers way up there, and it's because tonight what it means to be young, perfect teen movie ending melodramatic song that makes the previous teen movie seem a lot better than it does. According to Steinman, 
they were holding out because Jimmy Iovine was also involved in this project and they were holding out to the very end that Jimmy would work some magic and get the actual song Streets of Fire. They were still holding out for that until the very end when suddenly they realized, no, they were never going to approve it. So Jim had to write his own fake Streets of Fire to fill that spot. And that is what tonight is what it means to be young is. Uh, Basically, they were holding out for a hero. (laughs) They were holding out for a hero. (laughs) And when the hero didn't show up, you got Jim Steinman. In many ways, like that sums it up. If you can't get Bruce Springsteen to let you use Streets of Fire, and God knows what delusion made them think. If Bruce Springsteen saw 10 minutes of this movie, he'd be like, nope, you're not even using the title. They were lucky they even got to use the title. That this song was supposed to end with Streets of Fire. And, and so instead of like Diane Lane lip syncing that song, which would have been awesome, she was lip syncing tonight at what it means to be young, which is, you know, just ultimate, like it puts all the great Jim Steinman tropes all in one song it it really it could have been a much bigger hit it's such a great title i'm not sure that there's a better more insane song title in the entire history of music i love (laughs) it and 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 i don't want to again i don't want to oversell the movie but it's a classic of of a genre i happen to love we're going to move on to bad of hell 2 back into hell but rob insisted that we stop and talk about air supply for a minute and uh, this will be the one air supply moment on this and possibly any podcast. So, uh, Rob, Air Supply, please. Love Air Supply. So his, his Air <laughs> Supply song is Making Love Out of Nothing at All. Just how to whisper And I know just how to cry I know just where... It's hard to overstate how important this song was for Jim Steinman's career because his previous hits were with people who were not famous or who, like, were, you know, on the skids. This is the first time he took over a mega successful group who had their own fans and their own number one hits and their own sound. And he said, okay, I'm not using any of that. I'm going to turn you into Jim Steinman puppets. And it resulted in this great song. But it was the first time, definitely for me, as a kid listening to the radio, it was the first time I heard a song and said, that is absolutely a Jim Steinman production. Because it sounded nothing like Air Supply, yet it had all the tropes of a Jim Steinman power ballad. As, as Brittany said, this was the time when he was really inventing the power ballad and this was the air supply thing. There was the historical moment where they realized he could do this for anybody. I think there's people might imagine that the 80s, that if you just kind of like walked around the 80s, what you heard was the Smiths and the Cure and stuff. But really what you heard was, <laughs> was Total Eclipse of the Heart, making love out of nothing at all and holding out for a hero. That, that was the real 80s. Let's it face great. it. That was, and, and yeah. If you were it, in a he, mall in the 80s, that's what you heard. You didn't hear the replacements. <laughs> Yeah, he, he embraced that challenge. There was this great Rolling Stone interview he did in late 83, early 84, where he said, yeah, you know, like Black Sabbath really want me to do their next record. And he's like, and I don't really like them, but I want to do it just because I want the challenge of doing Black Sabbath and Barry Manilow in a five month period. He, wow. he really embraced that Bengali role. Why did that not happen? Why is there not an Ozzy or did it? I don't, Tragic. <laughs> tra- well, if it does, I'm sure Andy would know about it. That should but, have happened. No. He, he did attempt to work with Def Leppard which is kind of like a comical idea. It didn't go well. It would just be too much. It would be too big. You can't have Mutt Lang and Jim Steinman. It would, it would, it, although the idea is, is uh, fascinating to contemplate. I mean, I do like the song he did with Billy Squire as infamous. As it, the problem with that song was not the song, in my opinion. It was the video, which is hideous. Yeah, that was, that was the, Jim Steinman produced. It was Billy Squire who wrote, but it was a total like Jim Steinman sounding song that ah. was so epic. But as he said, the video directed by the guy who later did High School Musical, that was the career ender for Billy Squire. Also, he, he did that 
fantastic goth record with Sisters of Mercy yes. in the late 80s. And this is one I find it's a special oddity in the Jim Steinman catalog that if you tell Sisters of Mercy fans that Jim Steinman had anything to do with this song, it's invariably shocking because they seem like they could not be from more opposite worlds. But Andrew Eldritch of Sisters of Mercy and Jim Steinman, both crazy in the same way and both passionately committed to melodrama. And this Corrosion, which was just a huge hit for Sisters of Mercy, but classic for both of them. They were both into bombast, and this is a perfect bombastic 80s hit for them. As Andy discussed with his friend Meat, there are few comebacks more unexpected than not only that they made Bad Out of Hell 2, but that it was huge, and then it was even on MTV and stuff. It was in in 93. It it was the peak of grunge. It would be as surprising as like a Grand Funk Railroad hit or like a Gloria Gaynor hit or something. It was Meatloaf was the epitome of a washed-up 70s fringe novelty thing, basically, when Pearl Jam are king and Nirvana... But they've been talking about Bat 2 for so many years, it finally happened, and Steinman wrote these undeniably brilliant songs. I mean, I Would Do Anything for Love is so brilliant that it cut through everything and was a number one hit all over the world. And this is after years of Meatloaf and Jim Steinman suing each other and fighting over everything to do with the first Bat Out of Hell, right? Uh, yes, though so when I spoke to Meatloaf, he said that they never sued each other, their managers sued each other, and he uh-huh. never sued Jim Steinman in his heart. It was <laughs> it was just in the courtrooms, it was just in our legal system, never in his heart. <laughs> that is an, imp- an important distinction that I'm not sure the, our legal system recognizes. Brittany, you're a big fan of uh, Bad Out of Hell too. I mean, I'm a big fan of the entire Bad Out of Hell trilogy um, to the point where I did not realize It's All Coming Back to Me Now was original, well, not originally by Celine, but had been previously sung by Celine Dion. I just thought it started and ended with Meatloaf. But like, I Would Do Anything for Love, I Won't Do That is, I think, the greatest power ballad of all time. I think it's just absolutely amazing. I get offended when I hear the radio edit version of it because the extended ending is so good you need the 12 minute version you need the full version you can't because you don't know what he's not gonna do like you don't find out until the end what he's not gonna do for love and that's that he won't cheat on her like that's the entire point of the song and you spend the entire song being like what won't you do you seem to be doing a lot for love but you don't find you need the full version yeah it, it, you it's, don't have it's a very key point because there's so many interviews where meatloaf is asked what he wouldn't do for love and he always goes it's in the song. I even yeah. say, I won't do that when she says to me, are you going to cheat on me? And he yeah. says, no. Yeah. And it's at the very end. He, It's just slid right in there. But if you don't have the full version of it, which is the brilliance of the song, is that you need that interaction between him and the female vocalist. And you got, they're singing about what they want out of this relationship. And you finally find out the final minute final 30 seconds really it's just really at the end what he won't do um and that song is just so it's so fun and he just sounds incredible on it and i absolutely adore that song you may wonder why the videos for this album were so glossy both for this one and for objects in the river mirror may appear closer than they are and rock and roll dreams mm-hmm. come through all three of them directed by michael bay 
<laughs> so <laughs> there, there you go. This is starting to support my idea that Jim Steinman was a nexus being connecting. You know, we just had a connection to High School Musical, which connected him to uh, Olivia Rodrigo. He's connected to Bill Murray. He's just all all points in the pop cultural universe converge through him. And we don't know what we've lost here. But what's sad about what happens next here is that Battle of Hell 2 was this huge, huge monster comeback, and then the same thing happened again. They fell apart again. The next Meatloaf record had no Steinman songs on it. Then the lawsuits that weren't Meatloaf's heart happened again, and it just fell apart. It's, it's very sad. Can you imagine you're the A&R guy who's like, you know what? So we've got the next Meatloaf album. We think it's going to do well. No Jim Steinman. We think that's it. It always works. <laughs> like, how did they not drop him? There really was a post-Bad Out of Hell 2 Meatloaf album with no Jim Steinman on it called Welcome to the Neighborhood. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, and then they were talking about Bat 3 for years and years and years, despite all the lawsuits. But before it could happen, Steinman had a stroke. And then there was really nasty lawsuits about the trademark for Bad Out of Hell. So... He made Bad Out of Hell 3, not with Steinman's cooperation. He took old Steinman songs, went back to the 70s, and he's since disowned it. He told me about four years ago that Bat 3 doesn't exist. That's been erased from history, that there is no Bat 3. <laughs> I refuse to erase it. <laughs> the thing... It's like the teen romance in Paradise by the Dashboard Light. You know, you wish you never made that vow, but, you know, all you can do after that is pray for the end of time. For me, something that was lost that I really wish had existed, even if it was going to be really bad, is the Batman musical that Jim Steinman completed in uh, the late 90s, early 2000s, there was actually going to be a Batman musical. He wrote it. It happened. You can hear some demos on YouTube. It would have preceded the Spider-Man musical. It would have been uh, Turn Off the Dark before Turn Off the Dark. It was very operatic. He was a big Batman fan. He kind of saw he saw Meatloaf as a superhero, too. He saw everything as superheroes. I, I, the, that should have happened. I guess part of the problem was one of his vampire musicals had just become one of the biggest flops in Broadway history. So, you know, they suddenly weren't feeling the Batman situation. But someone should do, there needs to be one production, just one, a one-off of the Batman musical. And the story ends on a very poignant note that in 2016, when Steinman was incredibly ill and basically bedridden, and Meatloaf's voice was shattered and basically gone, they do one more record called Braver Than We Are, where Steinman did cooperate, though it was, it was old songs, and they talk on FaceTime and stuff because Jim couldn't travel, and they did one last record. It's probably last Meatloaf record. He couldn't tour for it, but they ended their career as friends. They talked a lot in his final couple of years as Meatloaf stopped touring because he was too sick. They got close again. So it's a very nice ending to the saga. Good last scene in the biopic. I love giving out free biopic ideas so someone else can make a lot of money off of them. And the, the Bad Out of Hell story is 100% a great movie. It has the classic scene of people scoffing and be like, this will never work. The Clive Davis scene alone, like, that's what you want. You want a lot of people saying that it will never work so the audience can sit there and be like, we know it will. They did that on VH1 about 20 years ago. It's a made-for-VH1 movie about Meatloaf's life. What? This already happened? Well, it's a bad bad VH1 movie from 2000, but that does exist. 
can't who? be as bad as the Death Leopard one where Anthony Michael Hall plays Mutt Lang. It's just as bad. It's the same exact time period, and it's just as bad. Who played Meatloaf? I don't know his name, but he was pretty good, actually. <laughs> he somehow failed to become a major star. How did that happen? You can see it on YouTube. The entire movie's there. Oh, I'm, we're all going to look for this. Yeah, yes, I, I recommend all, all viewers <laughs> head over there and let us know how it is. So that was today's episode of Rolling Stone Music Now. Thank you so much to Andy Green and Brittany Spanos and Rob Sheffield. That was a lot of fun. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. Truly is appreciated. But as always, stay safe. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord! We get it! They have chemistry! Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.